Well, good morning. Really good to see you guys here online. Welcome to Northland. And I don't know if you have come from a churched background or unchurched background, or some of you I know are from Catholic backgrounds. And if you are, you know the very intricate routine of naming popes. Back in 2005, Pope John Paul II, a beloved pope for a number of years, passed away, and it was time to select a new pope. And uh, before the conclave was finished and the new pope selected, nobody knew who the new pope would be or what his official title would be. But there was a computer geek, a guy named Rogers Cadenhead, who still has written some web stuff. Uh, you can see online, I think he lives in Texas, but from Catholic background. Uh, and this was back before domain names became a lot more accessible and people knew what to do. 2005. Bottom line, what he did is he'd selected several domain names, and one of them was www.popebenedict16th.com, you know, with the Roman numerals, along with several others. They picked the new pope. His new title was Pope Benedict the 16th. They go to secure the domain name. What? It's taken? Who? There's not been a pope. Benedict XVI in church history. How in the world did it? So they researched a little bit, found out it was Rogers Cadenhead, and they said, we would like that domain name. He says, I'll sell it to you. They said, what's the price? He says, no money, just three things. Number one, I want one of those big pointed hats. <laughs> I didn't, not the souvenir kind. I want, I want one of his spare hats, one of the popes. Number two, on a week at the Vatican Palace, all expenses paid. And number three, I would like total forgiveness and absolution, no questions asked, for the third week in March, 1987. <laughs> they said no. So he donated the domain name to a, a charity who then donated it to the Vatican. But you hear that, and what's the question that you got? Oh, don't say, oh, I have no idea. I don't have any questions. You got a question. You know what the question is. What happened in March of 1987? <laughs> we all have A bunch of March 1987s in our rearview mirror. Things that haunt us, things that gnaw at us, things that erode our heart, things that suffocate our joy, things that distract us from looking ahead. Our vision here at Northland is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. That comes straight out. It's our life, life is not just heart beating, lung breathing. It's this life of God, of an ability to flourish. Now, maybe self-improvement people say, oh, that's great. No, the Scripture is talking about flourishing to the glory of God, which is what we were originally intended for. This vision comes out of Jesus' of mission, His agenda, John 10.10. 10. Let me tell you why I've come. He says, the thief wants to steal and to kill and destroy. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, have it according to what you originally made for. And part of being fully alive is having those March 1987s addressed. It's baggage. 
those wince points. Being fully alive is being freed up from the rearview mirror and being able to focus on the future in grace and forgiveness. So as we're unpacking this vision, we're going through this, this series in John's gospel, we're calling it Awaken because the gospel is a summons to awaken. Awaken to the love of God, awaken to the, the, the forgiveness of God, awaken to the wholeness of God, the shalom of God, the power of God. And we're calling it Awaken because that's what Jesus is after. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 7. You're saying, we were just in John chapter 7 last week. Let me review real quick, and then we're going to read the text for tonight. By the way, if you're new with us, you don't own a Bible at all, pick one up at the welcome desk. It has our gift to you. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along. Last week, we were in, in the temple courts. And throughout John's gospel, he's talking about these awakenings that Jesus summons us to as human beings. And this one was no different. Seven festivals in Israel, the last festival in a calendar year, the last festival, festival of tabernacles, great celebration. In the midst of that, in the water ceremony with the high priest, Jesus proclaims on the last and greatest day of the festival, John 7, 37, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty... Come to me and drink. What are you thirsty for? Significance, security, forgiveness, absolution, purpose, intimacy. He says, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That rivers of living water, it's no better phrase in Scripture to encapsulate this calling that we sense that God has entrusted to Northland at this time of engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. That's being a river of His living water. Now, that is at the end of the festival. We pick it up with the next verse, verse 1, John 8, then they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. It's incredible how so many religious leaders have PhDs in shame. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Obviously, it's a trick. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down. and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, okay. Let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now these guys, Along with the PhD of shaming others comes a PhD, a master's degree that preps a way of that, of, of masking, of pretending, of hypocrisy. The, the way you can shame other people is you mask uh, all the hidden stuff. And so they were used to that, but there was something about the gaze of Jesus 
They've been lying, many of them, all their lives about how wonderful they were. And in other places, he says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs on the outside. It looks good, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. The hypocrisy, it's there. This time, his words went deep. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. All these religious leaders who had their stones in hand. Now, stoning would happen with a variety of stone sizes. Often, uh, the victim would be pushed into a ditch or over a cliff and big boulders rolled on top of them, but so that everyone would feel their participation. You had rocks of all sizes, and they obviously had their rocks with them in that moment. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The stones began to drop until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. He straightened up, and he goes over to her, and he asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Hmm. He didn't say, hey, it's no big deal. It just says, now make a shift. And make a shift with a clean slate. Such a powerful, powerful story. There are a couple of questions, though, I've got. One is just why is this placed where it is in, in John's narrative? Well, I, I know it happened about that time, but he's got it coming right after this speech in which Jesus uh, rattles the colonnades of the temple with that proclamation, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You want living water? I'm the one where you're going to get the living water, as he told the woman in John 4. So that's one question. But the other question from reading that is what? What question do you have after seeing that story, hearing John's account? Huh? What's he writing? Guaranteed he's not doodling. He's not nervous. Like, I don't know the answer. I, uh, no. He does it twice. 
I love God's Word. love the unity of His plan of redemption and restoration from creation to uh, through the fall into this realm of redemption, looking forward to complete restoration and the unity of Scripture throughout that. Scripture actually addresses what he was writing in Jeremiah 17. And it also, this passage addresses why John is making sure to emphasize that this happened right after Jesus' speech about, if you're thirsty, come to me for living water. Here we go, Jeremiah 17, verse 13, Lord, you're the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. I don't know if he was writing their names or their sins or both, but what he was doing is exposing something about this religious crowd. He was exposing that they had forsaken living water, which is why they had these ready to go. Now, last week we brought up that very deep theological principle that at Northland we talk about periodically from time to time. If you're new here, it was new last week. If you're not, you needed the review, and we'll do it periodically because it's throughout Scripture. It's, I call it plumbing theology. Plumbing theology is basically understand there's, this is deep, but go with me for a second. Understand there's a difference between a bucket and a pipe. You're supposed to say, ooh. Yeah. What goes into a bucket stays in that bucket and stagnates. What goes into a pipe flows through that pipe and goes elsewhere. Now, you come into church, and maybe we get to Northland for a while, so we're wanting to be pipes. We're right there. And the deal is, though, I'm, I, I'm not a pipe automatically every day. In fact, something can happen to me. I can get plugged up. And even though this looks like a pipe at first glance, guess what? It functions just like a bucket. So all of this truth about God's goodness in His grace, in His love, in His mercy comes there, but due to a number of factors, I, I refuse to give it away, so all of those, those wonderful truths simply become sterile, hollow religious words, and they mean nothing. Jesus was writing in the dust, exposing religious buckets who were no longer rivers of living water and never had been. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 says, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, You've been made holy. That's, holy does not come from a track record of my behavior. Holy comes as a gift of God, the imputed righteousness of Jesus, and it's motivated by the love of God. Holy and dearly love, clothe yourselves with compassion. So he's saying, hey, he's, put, he's done something. He's poured something into you. Now clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive each other. If any of you has a grievance against someone, and here we go, forgive. But the basis of that is as the Lord has forgiven you. He's not asking us to give away something that he's not willing to give us to give away. He says, go forgive. With what? With the forgiveness I've given you. 
So let's unpack this just a little bit more t- today and it, go deeper. You might have your master's degree or your PhD in plumbing theology, but let me just cover uh, two basic realities that are important. In marriages, in work relationships, in families, in friendships, in cultural impact, here we go. Two principles. There's a principle of the plug, and there's the principle of the pipe. Now, as we dive into these two, uh, you see the word vertical and horizontal here. So it's really important you understand those two words, all right? Uh, if you've flunked geometry, we've, we've got a problem, so we, we've got to at least come back to that. I came close to it, but one thing I did get from geometry in high school is the difference. And the reason is, thankfully, my teacher, and I don't know why he did, he didn't stutter any of the rest of the time, brilliant guy, uh, a warm guy, but he, he would describe when he was t- whenever he used in high school geometry class, whenever he used the word horizontal, he would always stutter it by saying hora, hora, horizontal. And he would always use his hands. You know, hora, hora, horizontal. And uh, so to this day, if you were to ask any of my sons, they would come up on stage, okay, uh, horizontal, and they would say, you mean hora, hora, horizontal. So hora, hora, horizontal, got it? That's this way. Vertical, this way. Vertical and horizontal in plumbing theology are related. What's happening here impacts what's happening here. The principle of the plug is that when I plug things up and I don't uh, absorb and digest and celebrate and dance to the symphony of God's love, things become stagnant. It becomes this morose reality. And guess what? That Vertical reality impacts horizontally the people around me. That's what was happening right there in front of Jesus' eyes with this woman. Now, there are lots of kinds of guilt. There's suppressed guilt. People, we all have guilt. We all have a standard, a conscience. That's part of our imageness. Now, people try to explain it away and blame it on religious institutions and so forth. But the reality is everyone from all throughout history, anthropologists would see there's this, this yearning uh, to be forgiven. So suppressing it is not going to be a good deal. There's, there's false guilt, by the way. That's another kind of guilt. Religious communities have it a lot. It's guilt for transgressing stuff that God never addresses that we've made up. It's the man-made, you know, human-devised rules and so forth, and the way that religious communities create this false guilt and manipulation. That's there. And you know what? Both of those will have a suppressed guilt, guilt, false guilt, will have an impact on my horizontal relationships. But here's one I want you to focus on. There's the true guilt. One of the reasons that we feel guilty is because we are guilty. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's not just a standard that we've missed. We've missed out on the beauty. We've missed out on the dance, the symphony of the glory of God. And we've all got that. We're born with that yearning for uh, absolution. It's not just for the third week of March in 1987. It's throughout our lives, all of these different things. Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story called Capital of the World. And it's set in, in Spain, and it's about the, the rift between a father and a son. And the son's name was Paco. It's a very common name in, in Spain, it's like, like Joe. 
or Sam or, or Bill. And uh, so he and Paco have this falling out. Paco runs to Madrid, the big city, to hide, to uh, start a new life, to, to try to suppress all the stuff that's gone on. But his father, he went after him. And he looked for him in Madrid, and he couldn't find him anywhere. It's a big city. So he took out a, an ad in the newspaper. Okay, I need to stop there because we don't know what an ad is. Um, okay, first, no, newspaper. Let's cover what a newspaper. Let's talk about paper, all right, first. So there was paper, and then they would, we would put them together in newspaper form, and the newspaper would have sections, and one section would be the classified ads, and anybody could take out a classified ad. This went on for a long time, if, in case you are not aware of that. And it was like the social media of newspaper land, and you could say whatever you wanted to. Obviously, the newspaper folks would uh, regulate that. So the father took out an ad in the local newspaper. It was called the El Liberal, and here's what the ad said. Paco. Meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven! Exclamation mark. Love, Papa. The next day, on Tuesday, the father showed up at the Hotel Montana, and there were 800 Pacos. waiting outside, all of them wanting to be forgiven and loved by their papa. And guys, unresolved guilt will suffocate our journeys, our stories. Ezekiel 33, verse 10, Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we're wasting away because of them. How then can we live? How can I live with this unresolved guilt? I will never live the life of the gospel without that, that guilt being addressed. In fact, the two go hand in hand. You're not going to have, I, I, I can't have the life of the gospel without my guilt being addressed. But it's understand the character of Jesus behind it. There's, there's, uh, there's an aspect of deep tenderness and love. Not putting aside my sin and saying, oh, it doesn't matter. It matters, but he's taken care of it. But understanding his character. I want to read to you a longer piece. Two times I'm going to read you quite a bit of Scripture. Uh, and both times I want to ask you, don't put on your Bible reading glasses and just say, I'll check out, find out what the preacher says, if it's worth listening to when he's done. No, if, don't pay attention to what the preacher is saying. Listen to the Word of God. And in this section, put yourself very similar to where you put yourself right there on that floor of the temple courts. Put yourself in the home of a Pharisee. Here we go, Luke 7, 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, translation, she was a prostitute. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there which I, I just love that the, the tax collectors and the sinner, the, those people were drawn to Jesus. Hmm. And she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, very expensive stuff. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears 
And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And of course, Jesus knows what he's thinking. Jesus answered him, I love how John puts that. It's subtle. Do you get that? The guy had not spoken out loud. He's thinking this, but Jesus answered. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So a denarii is a day's wage. So 100, uh, 500 denarii is a year and a half salary, basically. This is a lot of money. Then the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You yearn for that, and so do I. And he wants to freely lavish it. And if we don't, that guilt, if we say no to Jesus' invitation forgiveness, our love for him will simply be politeness. He's our mascot. And our attitude to the people around us Because of the guilt that's festering within us, it spills over. Thomas Akempis, one of the early church fathers, said, we're angry at times when we shouldn't be. He says, be not angry that you cannot make others as you want them to be. That's straight at religious buckets, functioning buckets. Angry at people because they're not abiding by our expectations of them. She said, be not angry that you can't make others as you want them to be since you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. Francis Schaeffer was a, a mentor of mine many years ago, and he talked a lot about dead orthodoxy in a place called Waymo, Switzerland, a place called Labrie. He would talk about dead orthodoxy, and he defines it in this way. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. You got all, you know what's in here? Oh my goodness, look at all that great theology. 
wait, what? Oh, yeah, it's not great theology anymore. It's festered. It's become something different than what. Back in the early 2000s, a movie came out about the Magdalene, uh, uh, the Magdalene sisters. And it was about something that was unearthed in 1990 when a convent in Dublin, Ireland was sold. And in the process, the graves of 133 young women were discovered in the back. As further research unveiled, these women were known as Maggie's. It's a nickname, a derisive nickname that the nuns had given these young women, named after Mary Magdalene, who was cast free of demons, uh, but religious tradition in some circles has the woman I just read about being Mary Magdalene as well. So Mary Magdalene being this woman of ill repute, as the phrase goes. Well, these young women were an embarrassment to their religious communities. They would be sent to the convent as unwed mothers and basically imprisoned there and relegated to slave labor in the laundries. And they were known as the Maggie laundries. And this prompted other investigations and this propped up in other places around Ireland. Philip Yancey wrote about this uh, when the movie came out and he made this observation. He said, What's astounding is the contrast between the way Jesus treats people of, who have moral failures and the way his followers often treat people with moral failures. But these nuns shamed these women, called them Maggies. It was a matter of vertical guilt that's unresolved, leading to horizontal condemnation. John 20, 31, we talk about it a lot here at the end of John's gospel. He said, this is why I've written my gospel. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believing is a one-time thing coming to Christ, and believing is an everyday thing leading to life in his name. He said, I've written my gospel for two reasons. The gospel is twofold. There is a part A and a part B. Part A is coming to faith in Christ for the first time and engaging with Him as Messiah and understanding the veracity, the cogency, the historicity of who He is and getting that. But let me, He says, let me tell you something. That's only half of the deal. And if that's all it is and you say, got it, I'm checked my religious box off, I'm waiting for heaven, you're missing the symphony of the gospel because I'm also writing that by believing on a daily basis, you might have life in His name. So it's not just about orthodoxy, it's about vibrancy. And it's not just about vibrancy, it's also about orthodoxy. This right here, when it's plugged up, is dead orthodoxy. But you open it up and this orthodoxy flows into the life of other people in a vibrant, life-giving way, caring for culture, caring for relationships, being Jesus with skin on. Yeah. But Ephesians 4.31, Paul says, You're always having to fight this. This plug has a magnet in it in my life. Going along and it's just, and all of a sudden things like bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander and along with every other form of malice. Paul says, make sure you get rid of that. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Plumbing theology, forgive. 
just as God forgave you. And it's a daily choice. If I could figure out a way to rig up a magnet right now, it'd be pretty fascinating, but it would also be indicative. I'd just hold this over here and that plug would come back up. And every day, that's the, that's the default. When I'm not walking in the Spirit. And there's a consequence to it, by the way. When I'm not forgiving the people around me, uh, it's making this even worse. I don't know, it's been attributed to several people, but unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. That's why religious communities can become so mean. And it's why they were in the crosshairs of Jesus. He was about transforming buckets, whatever the shape, into pipes. So the second reality, here we go. First one, the principle of the plug, horizontal or vertical guilt leads to horizontal condemnation. The principle of the pipe, vertical grace, leads to horizontal forgiveness. Learn to taste grace. Learn the dance. There is a symphony of grace in here. And the dance is just waiting. If we unplug and come in humility. Yeah, the first time is coming to Jesus, but then it's a daily aspect of confessing our sins, remaining humble. Steve Brown, how grateful I am that he's part of our teaching team here. And years ago, I heard Steve tell a story about a little boy visiting his grandmother, um, he and his sister for the summer. And he got a slingshot for his birthday, was practicing in the backyard and practiced on several things, then saw the grandmother's pet duck walking across. He thought, ha, let me see if I can. And lo and behold, he hits the duck in the head, kills it. Terrifies him, looks around. Nobody saw him, thankfully. So he buried the duck, and that was his secret, he thought, until the next day, and his sister let him know that she had seen it. And he said, are you going to tell? She says, probably not, depends on how you behave. And so when she didn't want to clean the dishes, she wanted him to do it, she'd just walk over to him and say, remember the duck. <laughs> she didn't want to clean her room, she wanted him to do it, remember the duck. He got tired of this after about a week and a half of living under this taunting of guilt and finally went to his grandmother and said, I'm sorry, uh, this is what I did and, and just, just confessed it all. She says, I forgave you. Two weeks ago, when it happened, he said, you knew it happened? She said, yeah, I watched it all happen from my upstairs window. He said, but you didn't say anything? She said, no, I wanted to see how long you would let your sister hold you hostage. <laughs> Some of you have walked into this place or turned online as hostages over the third week of March, 1987. And there's people in your life that are paying the price for that. Unplug. 
experience vertical grace. I'm going to give you some, yeah, I mean, it's the gospel. I'm going to read to you about how how God addressed his dilemma. You know, he has a dilemma. He loves you. He loves me. The reality is your sin and mine. And he cannot ignore the sin. This is not a matter of him saying, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. God can't do that. If he were to do that, he would cease to be just. And if he ceased to be just, he would cease to be God. So the dilemma is his justice and his love. Those are satisfied on the cross where he pays the penalty himself through his son. Paying an infinite penalty that would take you and me forever to pay. Because the penalty for our our rebelliousness is, is yes, all the stuff that happens inside us, but ultimately the penalty is all that stems from separation from God. So I'm going to read, I told you there's two big sections, and this is the second one. I'm going to read you a number of verses. You can put it in neutral or you can embrace. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray to receive Christ here in just a moment, to receive His forgiveness. If you have, but things have gotten plugged up, it's time to once again renew. you've You've never ceased to be a child of His, a follower of His, but you've ceased to be vibrant in your relationship with Him and with others. So hear the Word of God. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living. It's active. It pierces down to the marrow of the bone of our heart. That's what Hebrews teaches. So Jesus, as I read these words, may people trust you for the seed of your Word. There are some March 1987s in this room. And we just have a hard time believing that you're holding out love and not a rock. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In Jesus, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. He didn't dole it out. He lavishes on us with all wisdom and understanding. He doesn't do it mindlessly. He lavishes, but He knows what He's doing. Romans 8, 1 and 2, Therefore there is now no condemnation. That's what Jesus was saying to that woman with all of those dropped rocks around her. He says, I'm not going to condemn you either. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. John 8, 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Some of you are thinking, I... Has he really forgiven me? Here we go. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Some of you are saying, if I come and I I, I say I'm sorry and I receive Christ as my Savior and Lord, really, my, my, my slate's clean? 
Come now, Isaiah 1.18, and let us settle the matter, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. He says, I'm not going to deny that. Yeah, they're awful. (laughs) But they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Isaiah 38, 17, you've put all my sins behind your back. You tell me where the back of God is, and we'll both know. Isaiah 44, 22, I've swept away your offenses like a cloud and your sins like the morning mist. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. He's doing it for his glory as well as out of his love for you. And remembers your sins no more. So that sin, did you confess it? Do you trust Christ? And it was March of 1987 or last week and you keep bringing it up. He says, done. I'm remembering it no more. You're saying that sounds too good to be true. It's why it's called the gospel. Don't interpret God's forgiveness according to what your abilities are. Micah 7, 18 and 19, who is a God like you? So (laughs) let's let him frame what forgiveness looks like. Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Hmm. So you want to be separated from your sins as far as the east is from the west, want to see them cast behind the back of God, want to enter a realm in which God remembers your sins no more, then in the name of Jesus, forget all the religiosity stuff I just say to you, in the name of Jesus, come to Him. All religious communities, churches screw things up right and left. We all have magnetic plugs. But you know what? This is a community we're trying to figure it out and walk authentically. Let our obedience be motivated by forgiveness instead of trying to get our our forgiveness to be the result of our obedience. So here's my invitation to you. I want you to pray with me. If you've never trusted Christ, you want to know how do I do that? We're going to put the words to a prayer on the screen. Don't just read the words. Say them to him. I'd like to ask those of you who are followers of Christ, if you would say these words as well, read them aloud. Some of you need to get unplugged, so modify these. You're already a follower of Jesus, but you just need to come back to him. Uh, Go ahead and modify this prayer as well. So here we go. You guys ready to pray with me? Some of you, you're right on the verge of life and forgiveness. So pray with me. Out loud, Jesus, I acknowledge my need for you and the life you alone can provide. I confess that my sin is a barrier between us, keeping me from an intimate relationship with you and preventing me from living the life you intend for me. I agree with you about my need for grace. And I accept your loving sacrifice of dying in my place on the cross, 
paying the price for my guilt. I ask you to resurrect me from my spiritually dead status that hampers my ability to experience my full purpose according to the way you made me. I submit to you as my Lord and Savior and receive your acceptance, forgiveness, freedom, and leadership. I welcome your life into my life so I may abundantly live my days and flourish under your design. Thank you for making me alive. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want to ask you to do something. In your worship guide, there are these little cards Nathan and Rebecca mentioned. They're primarily for our connections teams, but we're going to also use them for this. Just right at the top, fully alive. And then put your name and contact information. The fully alive just says, hey, this is the day I, I was renewed in my life of Jesus. Or today was the day I, I trusted Christ for the first time. And, and we'll follow up with you and put you on a lot of religious mailing lists and stuff. So make sure you do that. I'm just kidding. We will follow up with you, but to serve you, to serve His agenda in your life. Give this to somebody with an orange lanyard or to the, at the information desk. And in return, uh, we have got some becoming fully alive. You'll get one of these. It's that prayer that you just prayed, it's in here. Welcome. Welcome to the family. Now, I do need to finish by explaining right before our worship team comes out that now that that vertical guilt is addressed, that principle of the, of the pipe is vertical grace leads to horizontal forgiveness. Forgiving as Christ forgave me. Here's some facts about forgiveness. It's not an avoidance of accountability, guys. Forgive, when I forgive somebody, I'm not saying, hey, it's okay and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There are standards. There is accountability. It's not naive. You're forgiving somebody else. You're not saying, hey, I'll just open myself up once again uh, and let you hurt me again. No, be careful. It's not dependent on the other person saying they're sorry. You're the one losing sleep, not them. They may never. Maybe they've passed away. But you can still experience the flow and the freedom of not letting, again, drinking that poison and expecting them to die. Forgiving another person is not governed by feelings. You don't always feel forgiving. I don't, for sure. I, I mean, this morning, I didn't even feel like getting up, but I got up because it's the right thing to do. And this issue of forgiveness is not without consequence. You choose not to forgive, you choose to forgive. The consequences to both of those decisions. And the only way that we can forgive is to be forgiven. And the only way 
this rock can be dropped is for me to realize that Jesus is holding no rock regarding me. And I've received him. About five, six years ago, a ceremony happened in India, in Mumbai. About 285 young women had a renaming ceremony. All of them had the same name. The same Hindu name had been given to them. It's on their birth certificates, and it's a name translated. It says unwanted. That's the translation. Derided because they were female. Associated Press did this article. And these young women got together with new certificates and new names, names that meant courage, and name that, names that meant beauty. And they interviewed a few of them. And I want to ask you to stand right now in the midst of a renaming ceremony. Some of you walked in here guilty. Go ahead, stand up. Some of you walked in here with the name guilty, and I'm here to tell you in the name of Jesus, you are now forgiven. You walked in here strangers to God, and now you're part of His, his family. So as our worship team leads us, let's proclaim this last song. And here's the deal. This song is a song about intimacy with the King of all creation. And you're thinking, I don't deserve intimacy with Him. No, you don't. But that's not a requirement for the dance, or else no one would be on the dance floor. To be on the dance floor is people who hear the symphony of the gospel of grace and say, I'm not going to be a bucket of it. I'm going to be a pipe. I'm going to receive it. I'm going to give it away. So let's worship Him together before we head out as pipes instead of buckets.